In the Know with Bernstein Research. Welcome to the first episode of In the Know. If you're not familiar with this brand new series, we discuss and debate key investment controversies together with what is top of mind and trending in the news with those who are, you guessed it, in the know. I'm Richard Moffat, based in London, and with me this week is guest Nadine Sarwat, our US alcohol and cannabis analyst. And we'll be discussing what Nadine has learned from her dedicated research into the booze and weed space and what the future might hold for these industries of sin. Hey, Nadine, welcome. Hi, Richard. Thank you for having me. I'd like to kick off today with we hear a lot of talk about the youth of today and their increased focus on health and wellness when compared to boomers like myself. But what do the actual stats say? Yeah, thanks, Richard. That's a fantastic question, because if we think back to COVID when we were all locked at home, we were seeing one of two types of very sensationalist headlines. The first would say that young consumers who are coming of legal drinking age are shying away from alcohol. They are turning to non-alcoholic offerings and are looking after their health in ways that maybe, Richard, your generation did not. But on the flip side, we then saw headlines saying that alcohol consumption spiked immensely during COVID as we were all drinking our way through lockdown. And as usual, those headlines don't tell the full truth. If we look at the data, if I zoom in on the U.S. for a moment, the market that I cover, we have seen over the last decade per capita alcohol consumption edging up ever so slightly. It actually increased during the COVID period and then over the last year fell a little bit, although we're still ahead of where we were 10 years ago. And so the view here is that no matter those headlines that you're seeing, humanity still loves alcohol. We all hear the negatives, why we shouldn't drink, why we shouldn't take drugs. Are there any positives? Well, this is where I always have to be careful what I say. I'm not a doctor or a policy advisor, but I think it's important to take a step back and wonder, you know, why is alcohol still part of society today if, as Richard, you correctly pointed out, you always hear the negatives? And I think this is a fantastic question to ask, one which uh, uh, actually the book Drunk, which I highly recommend to anybody listening who wants a slightly different read by Edward Slingerland, actually posits the theory that alcohol plays a very important role in society. That could be in terms of encouraging social bonding that allowed early groups of settlers to form tight bonds together. It allowed warriors or today's soldiers to trust each other and let their guard down when they are engaging in that bonding activity. It allows you to close deals. You know, we all hate the office party, but we usually leave a couple of drinks in feeling like we know our colleagues better. And this comes back to the idea that you might need some form of social lubricant in society in order to facilitate those transactions. You know, economists like to think of us as utility maximizing agents, but at the end of the day, we have an emotional side and alcohol actually plays a very important part in that. And when we look at your other space, cannabis, what's the direction of travel there? Legal in Canada now, increasingly legal in some US states. Is that going to become legalized all over the world? Certainly, that is where the trend is going. We've had Canada legalize recreational cannabis in 2018. We're now 22 states out of 50 in the U.S. where recreational cannabis is legal. And I think it's part of a broader trend of people questioning, you know, what do I know about the drugs that I'm taking? And when I talk about drugs here, I'm including alcohol. That study I mentioned earlier on by Professor David Nutt was the chief drug advisor in the U.K., really ruffled some feathers because his analysis showed that alcohol, when we considered social and physical factors, was the most damaging drug 
in a broad list of them once we consider anything from drunk driving to liver damage to uh, increases chances of domestic abuse. But when we contrast cannabis on that list, it was far lower. And you see a lot of young consumers today growing up in these environments where it is legal, questioning that as well, and feeling like the cost-benefit analysis to them of when they are picking their social lubricant or relaxant of choice at the end of the day is more in line with cannabis. Now, the real then question becomes not just what consumers want, but what the political environment allows. And I think this is where, you know, in our discussion on sin, we will always come back to what does politics mean and dictate for how we view these products? Because it impacts everything from regulation to the availability of these, whether that's for recreational or medical purposes, to even the type of information we are receiving as citizens as to how we should think about these drugs. And I think that's the important thing with cannabis is you also have a political element here. You know, one aspect where I think is important to highlight on the importance of regulation, earlier on you asked me what has happened to per capita alcohol consumption the big drop that we saw in the U.S. was actually in the 1980s when legal drinking age was increased to 21 and all states had to sign on on this if they wanted to maintain their federal highway funding. I mean, obviously, regulation is one thing, but is education the answer? Because you look where we're going with tobacco. Smoking is, I don't know the exact stats, but definitely seems to be on the wane. But it is still legal. You could still buy cigarettes in a shop if you wanted to. But there seems to be a belief and an understanding of the harm that it does. Is that the answer for alcohol and cannabis? Well, I think an interesting question I often get is, will alcohol go down the route of cannabis in terms of how consumers, investors, legislators view it? I think here there is an important distinction to make, which is there is such a thing as responsible alcohol consumption, where I could argue it is far harder to make that argument when it comes to tobacco. And so when we consider what regulation you have in place, you also need to consider, could we see a world where getting rid of alcohol altogether or, you know, as you said, in tobacco, that waning off is realistic. And the best example that we've had attempting in this is uh, an economist's dream from an analysis perspective, which was U.S. prohibition. And we can dive into that more if you're interested in. But at the end of the day, that was the biggest experiment we had in trying to ban alcohol. And so whenever an investor asks me, you know, could we see a world without it? I say, well, they tried for 13 years in America and it didn't work. So why do we think that would work today? So no chance of prohibition. What about legalization of drugs then? Is that the obvious corollary if prohibition doesn't work? Well, I don't think many people are arguing a free-for-all either. <laughs> I think there's an important distinction to make between agreeing to have something in your society and recognizing that it needs regulation. Everything that we consume, not even sin products, everything, the fruits and vegetables that you eat, the canned goods that you're buying, the beauty products, all of these have regulation for your safety and to once again maximize the benefits while minimizing the harm. Now, we can all have different political views on where we should land when it comes to the extent of regulation. One fantastic book here I would recommend and let me pull it up so I just make sure I get the title, is called Drug Use for Grownups. Now, this book is written by uh, Dr. Carl Hart, a professor at Columbia who is actually very liberal in his uh, descriptions of his own drug use. The reason I say this is an interesting read is because it is not frequent that you hear a high-ranking professor, in this case, I believe, of psychiatry at Columbia, speak so openly about drug use 
But he isn't either arguing a free-for-all. What he's arguing is we need an educated and, you know, I think he uses the word enlightened consumer who is able to make smart choices. And if I think of alcohol, you know, one of the reasons we have seen falling drunk driving incidents, falling youth consumption of alcohol is around education. It is around educating consumers, and that's both on the part of the government, but both on the part of corporates. You know, coming back to the point on ESG I just made, a lot of these alcohol companies, especially the ones I cover, have been very committed to promoting responsible consumption. And so that's a fantastic example to show that I don't think anyone's arguing a free-for-all, but educating your consumer is important. Now, bringing this back to how should we think about alcohol versus cannabis versus other illegal drugs, the problem that illegal drugs have is they are not consumed in a social setting. So coming back to that book, Drunk, I mentioned by um, Edward Slingerland, one crucial argument he made on why historically alcohol was able to be an integral part of society while minimizing the harms is alcohol was predominantly consumed in social settings. So I think he used the example of Greek symposiums where there would be a sort of master of ceremony who would dictate the rate at which uh, guests would drink and moderate the amount of wine that would be served versus water versus food. So you essentially have an arbiter there uh, ensuring that uh, no one is having a free-for-all essentially and you're maximizing those benefits while at least minimizing the harms that were acceptable at the time. Richard, you and I could go out for drinks, and at some point, you'd probably cut me off if I was drinking too much because you'd be a concerned colleague. Once we consider drugs, whether that's cannabis or some harder drugs, all of which are illegal or, for that matter, alcohol during prohibition, you drive it into private consumption. All of a sudden, no one knows their limits because no one is talking about it. You do not feel comfortable with having a social setting where you're consuming that and having friends, colleagues sort of provide a useful sense check. And I think that's one of the most fascinating ways of viewing education and regulation is regulation reaches its absolute peak efficiency, if you will, if the messages that you have been trying to push sort of make it into the subconscious of the citizens in your society and they're sort of regulating themselves. So if we go back to what happened in Prohibition, we had alcohol consumption driven underground. You could only buy alcohol in the black market. Consumers wanted the most liquid bank for their bucks, so they went to spirits, moved away from beer and wine. The spirits was not regulated, you know, bathtub gin that could make you blind because it wasn't regulated or could increase your chances of dying. And because of this, you wouldn't be drinking in settings where people could essentially look out for you. And so when we're thinking about regulation for these products, whether it's alcohol, whether it's cannabis, you sort of have to consider everything tying through together, not just the government policy, not just what corporates are doing, not just what investors can advocate for in terms of ESG inclusion, but then also as a citizen, what you are doing is part of society. And all of that has to come together. Just on the ESG side of things, I mean, who is this arbiter? You know, if things are legal, as society, we've chosen to support them for the elected government at the time is endorsing certain behaviours. In the financial world, who is setting these boundaries that say these stocks are actually unethical? Well, the answer is it's so subjective that I think a lot of the times, even I have interesting conversations where people are trying to draw that line. You know, if we think of it from a societal standpoint, Richard, you're right. It is a very weird mix of historical path dependency, how societies and civilizations have evolved, add a little sprinkling of government and politics and consumer preferences, a little differences in weather and which crops are available in which areas, and that's how you sort of get to where we are. 
but investors, I, I sort of see it as sometimes there is a very rough and ready measure. And you alluded to it earlier. I get called a sin analyst. I cover alcohol and cannabis, and that is viewed as a sin, even though I would argue most of the people who would say that are also consuming many of those products, hopefully in a very responsible manner. And I sort of challenge, how could you call something a sin if it has been a fabric of society since society is founded and is not going anywhere? I would also argue that every industry, when taken to excess, can be negative. You know, I'll challenge people and I'll say, well, what about the social media companies that are contributing to declining mental health of their young consumers? What about beauty and fashion houses who are airbrushing and they're ads and presenting unrealistic standards of beauty that have been shown to have negative effects on their consumers or processed food companies. All of these taken to excess have a negative impact on society. So it's sort of very arbitrary. And I think that's where when we're talking about ESG inclusion, that's when the conversation can be more interesting because we get back to the point I was previously mentioning, which is, okay, well, how do we maximize benefits while minimizing harm? And yes, part of that is through government regulation, but part of that is also challenging the corporates themselves, those who are making spirits, beer and wine to responsibly market their products, uh, you know, making sure that marketing is only to consumers above legal drinking age, that you do not have marketing that appeals to children, and all in all is promoting more responsible consumption. Are we likely to see these stocks and these industries becoming back on the radar for ESG investors? There's been a big debate in the nuclear space. Certain companies were blocked by, suggested by their investors that they should not be supporting the nuclear deterrent. As such, the nuclear deterrent has a shorter list of providers, therefore less competitively bid, and the price of servicing nuclear deterrent goes up. And obviously, in the last two years, the value of nuclear deterrent has come back to the fore and been recognised. There's a case to be made that supporting nuclear deterrent is actually very ESG-friendly. Do you think we're going to get there with alcohol? I had two immediate thoughts when you said that, Richard, because I sometimes think if we can all agree that prohibition doesn't work, then, and, and you know, it, it led to some pretty bad outcomes, anything from rising probability of dying from consuming alcohol to rising crime and the death rates associated with more crime from the bootlegging routes, et cetera, then could one make an argument that actually the ESG-friendly thing to do is not to shun alcohol companies, but actually to fully embrace a very regulated, thoughtful environment to sell alcohol as opposed to turning your back on it altogether. And I think that's probably the very foundation of argument of ESG engagement is none of these products are going to go away just because you turn your back towards them. If anything, you should engage to make those options better. Interestingly, when I have conversations with investors, what I will often hear is not people saying I want to or exclude alcohol. There are some who exist, although this we are not in the realm of tobacco. Many are asking, is there a risk that one day my investment in alcohol five, 10 years down the line will start to face that risk? So it's almost a second derivative. They're not worried about it from their own perspective. They're worried that others are going to start thinking about that. And I think this is the importance of these alcohol companies taking ESG very seriously. Now, in their defense, they have recognized for years, well ahead of investors, that they need to sort of call it remain squeaky clean. They need to earn their license to trade, as I think the um, CEO of SAB Miller once said, this idea that they know they are selling a product that, if not consumed responsibly, could do harm. And so they need to be good corporate citizens 
in order to ensure everything flows well correctly. You've highlighted there, Nadine, a couple of potential areas that companies should focus on to stay ahead of the game and drive their growth. Where should alcohol companies and cannabis companies in the future be positioning themselves? Which areas of the market and which consumers should they be targeting to generate supernormal growth that we have seen in the past? Well, if I start with alcohol companies, I think that's one we are probably all most familiar with. The absolute golden ticket for an alcohol company is when you are able to get a brand with legs. This is the beauty of the alcohol sector, not just from a drinking and enjoying the brand's perspective, but from an investment perspective. This is a sector with, at least when I look at my U.S. coverage, has no competition from private label, zero private label penetration. I will often say, when was the last time you brought private label beer to a party? The answer was probably never because your brands would have laughed at you. So already we are in an environment that favors brand building. So what sort of favors that brand building is also the concept of premiumization, you know, the, the buzzword du jour when it comes to alcohol. And that's because as humans, we feel a very emotional attachment to our brands. It's for alcohol, it's sort of a hybrid product, really. You know, for many of us, buying alcohol is part of our weekly shop. We're going to buy beer or maybe every once in a while top up on our spirits bar at home. But we have emotional attachments to our brands and buying something more premium can feel like an indulgence. And so even if we are not drinking more, if we are in a rich society, for example, as our incomes rise, we're going to want to drink better. That means that with time, you can get this sort of virtuous cycle of consumers consistently trading up. And if you always, as an alcohol company, have whatever that next big brand is on that premiumization ladder, uh, you're golden, essentially, and you can grow almost in perpetuity. So back to your question, Richard, you know, how should we think about companies in terms of who has those winners? I sort of like to describe, you know, how can you capture lightning in a bottle? Maybe we have some budding drinks entrepreneurs listening in today and would like some tips on how to create the next Casamigos or a brand out there like uh, George Clooney did. But what we have is I think you're looking out for companies that can sort of do four things. The first is going to be, for the most part, getting exposure to the right category. Preferences in alcohol tends to move in cycles. I like to sum it up as you don't want to drink what your parents drank. And that's why today in the U.S. we're seeing spirits gain share from beer, for example. So making sure you have exposure to the right category is definitely a winner. But the second is also you need to establish solid marketing. This is where it becomes more an art than a science. Uh, you need to tap into that emotional connection that consumers have. And sometimes that will transcend the actual taste of the liquid. But if consumers feel like your product is aspirational, that is also a very strong ability. This is where I like to say it sort of resembles a little bit more luxury brands than uh, other CPG companies. The third is you also sort of need to manage your distribution. This is when we get to like the very, I wouldn't call it boring, but slightly more, you know, supply chain, nitty gritty logistics of scaling a brand. If you stuff the channel and make it attainable by everybody from day one and everyone's aware of it, you just kill 10 years of growth. And if we look at what luxury companies are able to do, it's slow and steady expansion such that awareness is low at the beginning and it feels exclusive and you have to hunt for the brand in the supermarket. Uh, and eventually you make it more and more mass market as the brand increases with time. And you have to hold yourself back when you're building those brands. Uh, it can be very tempting to flood the market, especially if you have the distribution available in all 50 states in the U.S., but you've got to be patient. And when I came back to some of those top brands able to grow, you know, the top beer brands, and this is beer, which isn't even the 
most attractive part of U.S. alcohol today. Top beer brands were able to grow share for, you know, 15, 20, sometimes 25 years when you've hit one of those absolute golden tickets. And finally, you know, you sort of have to evolve your brand over time. You know, 10, 20 years is a very long time and you sort of need to refresh your messaging. Recently, a lot of our listeners might have been keeping track of this. That's what Bud Light tried to do in the U.S. Try to broaden its consumer base and embrace inclusivity with marketing, but did so when turning away ever so slightly from their core base, especially a lot of middle America, Midwest consumers who sort of have more conservative values. And that is an example of how, you know, you would hope a brand does not do it. Uh, but the best brands are able to do this ever so subtly with time. So, sir, Richard, that's a very long-winded answer to say it is not an easy feat to get these best alcohol companies. But when you do, it is lightning in a bottle when it comes to an investment. You touched on it there, but how much of a risk are these brands always running that at any point they could lose the whole lot because you are promoting a product that definitely is bad for your health? Are all these brands just one Bud Light mistake away from oblivion? And therefore, is it just the nature of this space? Are there any brands that we can trust that we can be sure will manage this effectively? Or are they all at risk? Well, I would say the, you know, Bud Light controversy was not alcohol specific. This was what will eventually probably become a Harvard business case study of marketing gone wrong. And I would say that's probably at risk for most brands in America today who engage in consumer products that are very, very visible. We've seen that before with Nike and Colin Kaepernick. Uh, and this is probably not the last time it's going to happen. So I would make a distinction that that is not alcohol specific, but it was sort of the perfect storm, if you will. But shifting to the angle of your question, which I guess was tying to the sin, and I'm putting this in quotes for our listeners of these stocks, I think we have to remember what would need to happen for all of this alcohol to disappear overnight. You know, do not forget that there are hugely powerful lobbying groups behind this. The absolute best example of this will be alcohol distributors in America from the three-tier system, the bits that we don't see as the consumer have, you know, immense power in Washington in also their specific state legislators. And also, crucially, consumers aren't calling for this either. The alcohol policy group in the U.S. recently re uh, released their study, which is put out every other year, surveying American consumers about what they think of current alcohol regulation and by and large consumers are happy with it. So you would need to say something happened as a true watershed moment. There isn't anything at the moment that would see consumers turn away from this, which sort of brings us full circle to the start of our conversation, Richard, which is that humanity likes alcohol. Well, that's a great place to finish, Nadine. You'll all be relieved here that it doesn't sound like there'll be prohibition anytime soon. As Dr. Philip Norrie, the wine doctor, said, consuming wine in moderation daily will help people to die young as late as possible. Nadine, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Richard. You've been listening to In The Know with Bernstein Research. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to like or subscribe. In The Know with Bernstein Research. If you do not have access to Bernstein's research, you can find it at bernsteinresearch.com, where you can also find important disclosures that we encourage you to review.
Bernstein has no obligation to provide any updates or changes at any time in the future. All references and or market forecasts are correct at the date of recording. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the presenter and may not be the same as the views of Bernstein or its affiliates. Bernstein is not providing any financial, legal or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast and this should not be considered as investment advice. This podcast must not be copied, distributed, published or reproduced in whole or in part. None of us hold positions in any of the equities that we have discussed today.